have a question. Have you ever bought a car before perhaps you were totally convinced that either you needed to buy a car or this was the car for you? If that's happened to you, chances are it's because, <coughs> excuse me, somebody did a good job selling it to you and as a part of that, that they kept you talking. Have you ever noticed, have you ever stepped back and sort of deconstructed the car buying experience or the anything buying experience if you have a good salesperson? Stratagem number one is get them talking and keep them talking about the car, about what they did over Christmas, about their dreams for the future, about anything. Just keep them talking. Connects us to the person, creates a sense of reciprocity, and dulls our sensitivity to very often the hesitation or perhaps the better judgment that might sneak in a moment's silence. You know what's really good at that? Religion. Keep them talking. Keep them doing. Keep them dancing. Da 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 da. Religion. Shimmer hands. Keep them active. More talk, more action, more enterprise, all for the kingdom. And maybe it'll keep them from getting still and quiet and facing the thing that so often lurks beneath, which is our doubt. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I wonder, is being chronically loud and active a defense against unbelief? Could it be that it is our way to avoid the big question, is it all real? James 4, verse 8 is where our series comes from, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The premise we've derived from that, which we're exploring in six installments, we're made to thrive. Did you know that? We were created not to struggle, but to thrive. And we're made to thrive in intimate fellowship with God. But we've got to choose it. God isn't going to hogtie, bash through the door, Chuck Norris style, and foist his friendship on us. We have to choose it. It seems we live in an age when nominal Christianity has become normal Christianity, and that's perhaps because of the increasing inaccessibility in this day and age of Jesus' age-old invitation. Follow me and become my disciple. To Jesus' hearers, that would have un intuitively, undoubtedly been understood to mean three things. Follow me, become my disciple. Be with me. Spend time together. Learn from the place of sharing life how to become like me. And then on that foundation, over time, do with the things that I have done. It seems that our religious structures and methods lend themselves well to the latter two, becoming of a sort like him, and then doing the things that he did. But remember John 15, Jesus said, live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. 
In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine. Listen, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. So this is the why of this series. This is the why of this year. You cannot bear fruit unless you are joined with him. You are made to thrive. You are made to bear fruit, fruit that will last, fruit that makes your life consequential, purposeful, more than the sum of your bank account and your contacts. But you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with him. And so we are on a three-year journey together to understand what it means to apprentice ourselves to the master, to become a disciple of Jesus by being with him, becoming like him, and doing the things he did. This year, in year one of this three-year initiative, we're focused on what it looks like to be with Jesus and what that means. What we're finding in exploring how to do what he said and make our home in him, how to abide in Jesus, is that we're running against the wind, trying to understand and practice being with Jesus in these bodies of humanity and in this world. And so we're asking, what are the headwinds that we're running against if we are to make our home with him? We looked over the last two weeks at our compulsions and our distractions. If you missed either of those or any installment in this series, I implore you, I plead with you, listen online to the podcast or go to denverunited.com and just click on the messages tab. These are each indispensable, not because I said them, but because the word of God teaches them to understanding how to be with Jesus. So this morning, the headwind we're going to address is our doubt. This headwind doesn't come as a product of culture or of church, but it comes from deep within us. And so to understand it and call it out, we're going to look at a case study in the life, this time of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Look with me at the scriptures in 1 Kings. This is a book of history in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. The Bible teaches when King Ahab got home, he told Queen Jezebel everything this prophet Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as I killed them, those other prophets. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and, was le- and left rather his servant there. And then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. And he sat down under a solitary broom tree, prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. The context to this passage A chapter ago in 1 Kings chapter 18 was the famous showdown on Mount Carmel. Perhaps if you grew up in church, you're familiar with this story. It makes it into the Sunday school highlight reel, especially if you grew up Baptist and they go a little deeper into the word. You'll get Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you haven't, you're like, this is all Greek to me. Here's your homework. Read 1 Kings chapter 18 
It's just one chapter. It'll tell you a really cool story and then read 19 again and as we're going to look at this morning and it'll inform it with more narrative context. But the Cliff Notes version is that God told Elijah to confront this wicked king of Israel, God's chosen people, who is a puppet to his domineering wife Jezebel. Hey, these false gods that they're worshiping, principally this god Baal, has all these prophets and priests that Jezebel has invited in, and they're polluting God's covenant community. So call them up to the top of this mountain, Mount Carmel, and we're going to find out who the real God is. So it's like a showdown, Wild West style, and Elijah challenges them to call on their God and demonstrate his power Nothing happens. They get embarrassed. Then Elijah calls on God. Fire falls, consumes the altar, kills the priests of Baal. It is a melee for God. So fresh off this faith victory, Ahab, humiliated, goes home and tells Jezebel what happens. You know, Jezebel wears the pants in the kingdom of Israel right now. And she sends out a threat. She puts out a hit on on uh, Elijah's life. She whispers his name. And so Elijah gets scared and it makes you wonder how he could get to this place having just seen what he saw. Miraculous power of God against all odds. But he got afraid and then he got alone and then in solitude he got face to face with the deep down core himself. Not the great man of God, the personage, but Elijah, the dude. And alone, gut-level honest, it seems he faced what he actually believed. And solitude does that. It isolates and exposes our doubt. Perhaps in the better judgment sense, it's why the car salesman doesn't want quiet. He's going to keep you talking about yourself, about your kids, about your job, about your dreams for a vacation home. All the talk anesthetizes us to it. But solitude isolates and exposes our doubt, doesn't it? So instinctively, we, we avoid it. This, I believe, is a huge reason we don't draw near. Remember, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you is God's invitation. Our premise is that that intimate communion is available to us right here for free. But we have to choose it. Why don't we choose it? One big reason, I think, is in solitude, where we choose it, where it plays out, our doubt is isolated and exposed. In solitude, there is stillness. In solitude, there is quiet. And these things unmask our unbelief. Uh, Does anybody else have tinnitus? Or some people call it tinnitus. Any other tinnitus people? Dave makes sense. I do. And so I hear ringing all the time. Do you guys, what does yours sound like? Do you all, have you figured out your pitch? Like mine's... It's kind of like a gnat in Georgia. Horrible. Have you ever been, had a gnat in your ear? You're like, ah! It's that all, all the days of my life. Uh, other tinnitus people? Okay, so what we do is we figure out coping strategies, right? Or you go crazy. And so what are your coping strategies? Usually they involve some sort of noise or distraction. 
Like, do you go to sleep with headphones or do you have a, like, do you have a noise machine or a, like white noise or an app on your phone? How do you guys cope? What I find is that when I hear myself talking or when I hear noise, which is most of the day, either myself talking or noise, I don't notice it. It just kind of gets drowned out. But when it gets really quiet and when I'm still, hold on, I'm going to experience that right now. Ready? So I'm going to pretend you're not here. Oh, no, there's noise. It's the HVAC system. So even that drowns it out. It's kind of how solitude works. When we get still and when we get alone, it teases out our doubt. This didn't just happen to Elijah, lest we bust out this man of God. It happened to some of the greats. Do you remember the one, fast forward real quick to the New Testament, just to give Elijah some company. Do you remember whom Jesus said of him, there's no one greater born of humans? Anyone know who that was? A little Bible pop quiz. Who was it? John the Baptist. Oh, yeah, no, no, Nathaniel, close to Nathaniel was the true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. John the Baptist, the one he said, no one greater than this dude. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist literally leapt in his mother's womb when she encountered in utero Jesus. John the Baptist knew of Jesus from his first breath. He grew up with him, and then he was led into the wilderness where he preached to prepare the way for him. He baptized Jesus. How trippy is that? And do you remember what happened when he baptized Jesus? Anyone remember? Audible voice from heaven. Like God broke through the space-time continuum and said, undoubtedly with a voice that sounded like either James Earl Jones or Sean Connery, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, him, him. Kind of like Mufasa when Simba was little. John the Baptist didn't just hear that. He literally facilitated, he was leading the ministry at which time it happened. John the Baptist sent his disciples, some of his disciples, to go follow Jesus when they discovered him. He was like, look, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sins of the world, his disciples, who he'd been cultivating and had been following him, left him and went to Jesus. John the Baptist said, I must become less so that he can become greater. That's John the Baptist. Now, fast forward, end of John the Baptist's life. Anyone know where he was? Prison. Because he pissed off the king or the ruler, Herod, who threw him in prison, basically, because he, um, he called out his marital infidelity. So he was in prison. Matthew 11, John the Baptist in prison heard about the things that the Messiah was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you him? Are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we... Keep looking for someone else. How do you flub the past that bad at the 11th hour when you've been aware of Jesus like no other human literally your entire life? Your purpose is to prepare the way for him. You have done it so well that he said there's no one greater than you. 
You heard the audible voice of God affirm it. And at the end of your life, you get quiet and alone, as I would imagine prison gave them a lot of time to be. And what creeped in? Doubt. Wait, after all, can you just double check? Is he the one? It's what solitude does, doesn't it? Has that ever happened to you? When you slow down and you get quiet and alone, your doubts, they rise to the surface and they can dominate your faith. Hebrews 11 teaches this. Whoever would draw near to God, that's what we're talking about, right? Drawing near to God. Literally the same phrase in Greek. Whoever would set herself or himself to this purpose must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I always thought the first half of that was um, self-evident, like duh. But here's the thing. If you would draw near to him, you've got to believe that he exists. And drawing near to him smokes out in us how often maybe we don't believe that. This makes it more comfortable to stay in the realm of doing rather than the realm of being. I think many of us in our productivity culture and our consumer economy and our get-it-done Christianity are more comfortable in the realm of doing. When I'm busy doing stuff, I don't have to face my unbelief. Like when I'm busy talking, I don't have to face the constant ringing in my head. You remember the old bumper sticker? Jesus is coming, look busy. It's my favorite. I mean, it's actually pithy. But that's the thing we do, right? That's like the, that was, I found that on the Atheist Society website, but it's sort of a tacit watchword of us Christians. We just don't say it out loud or put it on bumper stickers, but you know what? It's on the bumper sticker in our hearts, isn't it? Jesus is coming. Look busy. How much more exact would it be if if the bumper sticker across our heart said, Jesus is coming, be still, get quiet. But man, we excel at looking busy. Filling the space with our actions and more than anything with our words, our noise, and our activity. Making God into an ism, an ideology that we subscribe to. Every so often we re-up our subscription and that we promulgate. More than anything, it's easy to keep talking. In the way of the heart, Henry Nouwen observed, sometimes it seems that Our many words are more an expression of our doubt than of our faith. It is as if we're not sure that God's Spirit can touch the hearts of people. We have to help Him out. And with many words, convince others of His power. But it's precisely this wordy unbelief that quenches the fire. Just keep Him talking. The other night in small group, I noticed Elijah. Is Elijah still sitting over there, Aaron? I saw him earlier with you. Oh, he's back in the back. Oh, that's Megan. Hi, Megan. Uh, Can I tell this story? I should have asked you first. You can say no. 
I mean, it's, it's not sinister or anything. We're having this, like, discussion, as you do in small group, and Megan had Elijah, and I noticed he was, like, grabbing your face. You were looking at Sarah, and he was, like, doing that because he's a baby, and he's forming a secure attachment with you. And he's like, Mom, do you see me? Mom, do you see me? It's kind of how my... Um, prayer life evolved. I don't, I don't think I ever actually chose this intentionally, but when I was young and I learned about prayer, something unformed or broken in me quietly whispered, got to grab God's face and turn it back because he's got the whole world to run and like the Andromeda galaxy besides and, you know, dark matter to slowly teach people about and plenty Unless my thing, unless I like, I'm bleeding or I'm losing a limb, he's like, you're good, man. You got good parents. This is sort of my internal narrative. So when I prayed, I prayed loud and passionate, and I never let the word stop. Did anyone pray like that? I learned a, a model of prayer that if there was a pause, throw in Father God. I just love you, Father God, because Father God, I really need Father God. You to Father God come through for me, Father God. Because I think I was afraid. Did anyone have this weird... Father God paradigm. I think it was a charismatic thing, and that was the years that I was, what I was in when I was learning to pray. I'm grateful for that. But I think my prayers were meaningful, but I think the, the method belied something broken, Pastor Daniel, and that was that, and you've helped me learn this, that if I got quiet, he would look away. So I'd grab his face and turn him back like Elijah did to you, Megan. Like God maybe wasn't as present as I taught others to believe he was, or that he wasn't as willing, or maybe that he wasn't there. But if I kept myself talking, keep him talking. Da -da -da -da. Can we talk about this in church? I love the premise of Alpha. It's Church ought to be the place where we can bring our doubts and our fears and the dark parts of ourselves, but it's become the place, the last place we would do that. And we can go talk about that at bars with cynics, but heaven forbid we confess in church that sometimes we aren't totally convinced that God exists. Can we say that out loud? Let's get real about our doubt. Personal growth is good. Growing to be more like Jesus, or at least growing tangential to his character, that's valuable. Doing the things that Jesus did, getting out there and doing good, being a force for positive change in our city, that's good. But those things don't take a ton of faith. The idea of just being with him, being with a him who is omnipresent, invisible, everywhere at once, supposedly in my heart, that takes faith. How does that even work? Am I just sitting here by myself? And calling it God? Does he care? 
does he really have time for me? Does he really exist? The story continues in 1 Kings 19 in verse 9. Elijah came to a cave and he spent the night there. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. So God says, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. You know the story. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire either. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. How do you even hear a gentle whisper after a hurricane and an earthquake and a roaring fire? But Elijah heard it, and when he heard it, he got the point. He learned the lesson. He knew it was God. Elijah gets alone and in the face of his doubt, recounts his record his record of doing stuff for God. But it didn't silence his doubt because we don't meet God in doing. We meet God mostly in stillness. Could that be the lesson in Elijah's life in this case study? We meet God most often, not in the doing, but in the being. Not in the hurricane and the earthquake and the fire, as it were, but in the still small voice. We meet God most often in stillness, so it follows that we collectively, we don't often meet God. All of you who are leaving, I'm going to have to ask you to go. Get on out of here. That's right. No, I'm just kidding. Those are our group leaders. They're going to warm up the soup for you. Pay no attention to them. (laughs) Actually, pay a lot of attention to them in like 10 minutes. Let me say that again. We meet God most often in stillness. So it follows that we don't often meet God. We do stuff about God. We do self-improvement in the name of God. We do activities for God. But how easy it is to be the example that Jesus highlighted, to get to the end of our life and say, look at all the things I did for you, God. And he'd say, what? I never, I never knew you. We meet him in stillness most of the time. It makes sense why in discipleship, such as it is in church, we famously skip ahead to becoming like him and doing what he did. Because as a culture, as a race of humanity, we are averse to stillness. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. We're more natural in the realm of doing than of being. 
let alone being still. As uh, Morpheus might say, God, it would seem, is not without a sense of irony. There's an irony in this solitude and the silence and the stillness that come with it. Open us up to our doubts. It's the first half of the Elijah lesson. So we tend to avoid them. Makes practical sense. But it's precisely in the solitude, in the stillness, and in the silence that God tends to draw near and to extinguish our doubt. It's ironic, isn't it? Makes sense why few would draw near, why Jesus' words had the right of it. Many are called, few are chosen. The problem is the prescription. Do you see it? The problem is the prescription. Solitude smokes out our doubt so we avoid it, but it is in solitude that God meets us and extinguishes our doubt. So we must press through if we are to draw near. Whoever would draw near to God must what? Believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He's not looking for you to embark on some pilgrimage of self-denial. It's losing our life to find it to which Jesus has called us. This is the lesson of Elijah, and it's captured in one simple verse in the Psalms, and we'll wrap up here. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. There's two things in this simple verse. One, it's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. It's not even an invitation first. It's a commandment, and I suggest it is the hardest commandment in the Bible to obey. It is a commandment, but it's something more. It's also a code. And embedded in this code, in this simple command, is a path. Notice the comma. I used one of the more literal translations because I think this is important. I'm kind of a punctuation nerd, and I think what you're seeing is that God is too. Be still, comma, and know that I am God. Listen to it this way. My child, if you'll just be still, you will know. Being with Jesus extinguishes our doubt like nothing else can. So this is the invitation. Lean in. It's running against a mighty headwind. It's countercultural in the world. It's even countercultural in the church. Lean in. Andrew Murray wrote in his classic work, Abide in Christ, let each consciousness of doubt only give 
new urgency to this command. When we feel it, don't run from it. Run in, lean into it. Lean into the doubt. God's capable of handling your doubt. He's not going to strike you with lightning. Religion has done you a disservice by making you think that that's an abomination to God. He's gracious, this God we serve. He's compassionate. Lean into the doubt. And teach us to listen more earnestly than ever in the face of it. Till the Spirit again give us to hear the voice of Jesus saying with a love and authority that inspire both hope and obedience. Child, abide in me. That word listened to as coming from himself, that word will be an end of all doubting. Friends, we aren't able to overcome our doubt with religious activity. It's not as though I'm trying to lead you down the path less chosen because I want this church to be extraordinary or to be gluttons for punishment. That is where we find the God who is there. Not down the path of religious activity or ideological alignment or self-improvement. All these things fall into place down the line, but they lack the power to reveal God. At the end of the day, they're just going to compound our doubt, like drinking a soda when you're thirsty. We overcome our doubt by meeting God, by being with Jesus. And so I want to ask us to try it, to practice as Pastor Daniel's been teaching us. We've got a bunch of new groups that are going to be practice groups where we're going to do what we're doing here for a minute at the end of service together in a community where we can try and then talk about it and be like, how was that for you? It was painful. It felt like two hours of sitting still. All I could feel was itchy and I wanted to move and I wanted to get away from it. We're going to practice for a minute. Can we do that? So I'm going to be quiet in a second and Susie's going to be quiet and I can't make the HVAC quiet, but just let that be your noise machine, all right? Let me encourage you just for this, just settle in for two minutes. Put your feet on the floor maybe, just be grounded, comfortable. I love what Maggie taught us. Feel yourself being held by God. Release muscle tension. Notice if you've got tension in your neck or your face. You can kind of do your RBF. No one's going to look at you. Okay? Now, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Be still. Be still. 